want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to uh, be your best friend and fuck you, treat you good, lick your pussy, no problem. Oh yeah. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I was just about to say Director's Club episode. Who am I? I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm DJ Patrick Rapole. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we have a wonderful guest, a returning guest, his second yeah. appearance here. Yes. We're very excited to have Stephen Ray Morris. In- Yay. Yes. <laughs> How's it going, guys? Stephen I- Ray Morris, uh, best known. Some would say his life peaked uh, from being on our Tim Burton episode. Yes. Uh, <laughs> About a year ago, too, actually. Yeah. No, he's also uh, a filmmaker in his own right. He, we work for like a production company now. Yes, I am a motion graphics producer. You are um, podcasting from your office. Yes, uh, it's a fancy term for sending a lot of emails and mixing it up and getting lots of coffee. It's really fun. Yeah, I'd like that job. Very good, very good. Well, yeah, we're um, we're uh, hopefully Stephen, you're not quite as loopy as we are uh-huh. today. We're way out of it. Yeah, we're way loopy. Bath salts. I, I, I was also recovering from a little from a little uh, food attack. Not quite as uh, terrible as Jim has described. Uh, real food poisoning. So I'm thankful. <laughs> My bad. So, so Patrick's the only one on the floor now. Not not. I'm not on the floor. Now. There's four on the floor right now. Mm. You got. Two. I am. I'm relaxing on the carpet. Yes, because I've earned it. Uh, I was just on another podcast. That's true. That's right. That's exactly right. I was just about to segue beautifully, but man, you did it so much better. We're both beautiful, Jim, but uh, I'm, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, you have a beautiful mind. Now, uh, I was on the Film Jive podcast. These are two guys. uh, I believe it's uh, Nick from from Great Britain and uh, Zach from the United States of A., and uh, they're two guys, and they talk about usually recent theatrical releases. And they had me on to talk about Prometheus. Sweet. Um, th- be awesome. sure to check the Directors Club website. I'm, I'll be sure to post a link to that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Prometheus and what we watched um, this week. Oh, what a shame. No. <laughs> you know, the internet is not talking enough but, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, spoil- but spoiler alert, I was not a fan. Um, Speaking of what we watched, we do want to pitch something to the audience. Oh, shit, we do. Well, we were sort of brainstorming ideas, and we were trying to think of how to make this show better and how to make this show easier to listen to, because we understand it's a big show, and it's a mouthful. It's a very big show. Yeah. Can't be contained. Yes, it is, it is the big show. Uh, God, I wish <laughs> I could pull that guy, that wrestler's name. I know his real name, too. It's just mm. not coming to me. Um, but uh, So me and Jim were discussing the idea of doing Director's Club... Uh, every two weeks, like we've been doing, but but trimming it off to just be about the director, and then having a separate weekly show where we talked about what we watched that week, and we are able to do other weird stuff, um, maybe, maybe like game shows and yeah, stuff. Ra- radio puppet puppetry, <laughs> uh, pu- puppetry of the penis. You know, <laughs> you just don't know. Weren't we already doing that? They <laughs> can't. They can't see uh, that. No, hey, Jim. Hands above the table. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're real loopy. Uh, but so if, if you want more of us, if you, if you think like a weekly show that wasn't about a director uh, from us is something you might be interested in, let us know. 
um, because we we want to help you guys because mm-hmm. uh, help, I mean everyone must help, help you. The ideal length for a podcast, I think everyone can agree, is not much longer than an hour. Um, mm. I mean, unless I'm, some, I'm somewhere in the middle. I like hour and a half myself. Um, I, I I I still think about an hour is probably uh, you know ideal. And so if we were able to do an hour show that just about a director, and then an hour show, a weekly hour show. That might be better. So, uh, yeah, just split it up. Yeah, I like that idea. But do you like that? I mean, that's the question. Are you happy out there? Are you happy with how things are? Jim, my ear is bleeding. I'm sorry. I'm psychoanalyzing everybody. Tell me how you feel. Jim, I feel like my ear is bleeding. For real? (laughs) It's really bleeding. Why is that happening? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe because we're so psyched about the episode of Jane Campion. Yeah, that's right. This episode. Bouncing this, off the walls. This uh, director... Trickling is, down my cheek. Yeah. Uh, this director is Jane Campion, everybody. No, we didn't mention that at the top of the show, but also just uh, yeah, send us your thoughts either on the Facebook page or via email if you are you know, satisfied <laughs> with how things have been or if you would like to you know, have us sort of split things up where, yeah, like, like, like Patrick said, an hour of uh, the, the, the bi-weekly show that like, we've been doing, only, only talking about the director and then... Uh, having a weekly show where we do the what we watched and and with more nonsense like this, yeah, if, yeah. Usually we're a little bit more restrained, especially since last episode the guest was in you know was kind enough to invite us into his house. We weren't about to get that wacky yeah. in front of him. I, I definitely didn't want my ears to bleed on uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Stephen King, that's true. I mean, maybe your brain is just just blown up right now it's, it's not actually coming out of my canal it's my ear like the uh could be a, 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 another allergy i sort can't of. imagine our, our audience is particularly interested you'd so, be surprised uh, i mean i've heard a lot about let Jay us Shields, know so. by the way i know we haven't been reading uh po- emails on the podcast but we're definitely going to try to get better about responding to you even if it's just hey thanks for the message or because we're getting a lot of great emails consistently and i know that we haven't necessarily always been uh responding to them yeah, and we've also gotten many more Facebook likes, so be, be sure to check out our Facebook page. We've got to start linking, um, you know, like when we put up new uh, blog posts on the website to that page as well. Uh, but, yeah, we'll, I mean, just uh, keep things interactive as, as we were trying to do more of. So, Awesome. Why don't we try, uh, do we want to take a break or do we want to just launch right into what we watched? What, Depending- what kind of break? I'm ready. <laughs> you know, you could have, you could have, you could have, you could have launched what we watch and then asked me off air if we wanted a break. Hey, are you asking the audience? Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> this is like choose your own adventure. You go to the bathroom, Jim. Is that is that what you? No, 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 no. That's not at all. I was just giving the audience an opportunity for choose your own adventure. Do you want us to take a break now, or do you want us to continue? Turn the page 178 if you want us to continue. Yeah. All right. Um, Jim's going to jab a sedative needle in the back of my neck is what he's really yeah. asking for. No, I was for. just concerned if you, know, if you want to take a break in regards to your ear. Hey, Jim. What? Let's talk about what we watched this week. M is for movie. What did we watch this week? M is for movie. What did we watch this week? M is for movie. What did we watch this week? Oh, what movies, movies did we watch this week? Steven, what did you watch? What's 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 out? What's what's going on? <laughs> well, besides uh, joining in the Prometheus shenanigans and Uh-oh. getting my yeah. midnight poster, um, 
I don't want to talk about Prometheus a lot too, just because everyone's talking about it. Um, I'm on the I'm on the same page as Patrick, except that I actually really like it, um, even though I don't think it's a very good movie. Hmm. Um, and especially because I also watched Alien this week, and I mean, Aliens was the first movie I saw, the, one of the first rated R movies I saw as a kid. So I love Aliens. But going back and rewatching Alien, I mean, I think it's just a much more fun and it's a smart movie. And it's, it's, still, it's still really enjoyable despite feeling a bit slow for, you know, today's audience standards. But um, actually, I recently just started getting Netflix again. So I'm kind of uh, losing my mind about what to watch. Yeah, um, that can be overwhelming sometimes <laughs> with the options. I sometimes spend like a half hour trying to decide what am I, what am I in the mood for? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, it, you know, so me, I just sort of panic and then I end up watching just like episodes of, uh, you know, natural disasters. Or, oh, yeah. like, <laughs> after For me, it's uh, Anthony Bourdain, no reservations. I'm like, oh, what do they eat in Bangkok? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I've been watching the Avengers cartoon that was on the Disney channel. That's like currently on the Disney channel. Oh, weird. And, uh, it's actually a really fun show for kids. I've always been a fan of like kids shows and, and you know, how they, I don't know. I mean, how do you write something for a kid without being condescending or anything like that? And I think it's a very entertaining show and it moves a lot faster. I mean, it moves, like it moves along. I don't think anybody could get bored of, uh, it suits the, you know, our sort of ADD society now or ADHD or, you know, just fast paced and stuff. But like, I feel like it's really easy to keep up with. And I think, I mean, something that I really enjoy and I think, I don't know. I think it's just entertaining, you know, it's just a good way to like kill like uh, a lot of time where as opposed to like, you know, I, I myself couldn't get into something like Downton Abbey or anything. Like, I feel like I don't, maybe I don't have enough patience for something like that anymore, but yeah, Netflix, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a beast that I, I opened up Pandora's box again with it. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. It's crazy. The fact that Netflix has available all the episodes of the Wonder Years too. That's something that's a real oh, wow. treat for me because I grew up watching that show and always been clamoring for a DVD. But they're never going to get the music rights for all the songs. Well, they didn't really get the music rights for all of, on Netflix Instant either. Oh, they changed the theme song. I feel for like sure. the one. Yeah, they definitely changed. Yeah, it's a cover. It's not Joe Cocker doing it. It's not. Yeah, it's not Joe Cocker's cover. It's a weird approximation of Joe Cocker. It's like a kids' beats version. Hey, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I always have adults like like you know people who like vote and drink and stuff like telling me that Justice League is a good cartoon, <laughs> and I don't believe them. Like, so maybe you like what is the is it just that it's easy to watch the the Disney's The Avengers or is it like like what is the appeal? I guess for me the appeal is that I mean it, it, the appeal is that it's easy to watch, of course, but I think the appeal is that for me at least. It, because I'm such a big either sci-fi or fantasy fan, it's an easy way to jump into a world that um, feels like fully formed and, and you don't really have to do a lot of legwork in terms of figuring out uh, what's going on because, hmm. you know, they spell everything out for you. But they, it's, it's an interesting show too because unlike superhero movies that feel like they always have to start from scratch, um, this TV show in a way kind of says, you know what, like, your, your, you know, your parents or whoever, like, 
you know, to kids anyway, there, you, you know, everybody knows the story of all these superheroes. And so let's just dive in and start actually telling, you know, fun, compelling stories, as opposed to having to start from the beginning of how everyone became a superhero. The, the show is not even interested in that. It's more interested in just what are people doing in it. And again, it plays with all the classic, you know, themes of, of life and love and death and good versus evil and all that stuff. But in a way, it's super easily digestible. And and again, it's one of those things where you keep wondering, like, what happens next. And so it's kind of like, for me, it's like my weekly, or it has been like my sort of daily, weekly, like, you know, like a comic book. Like, it's a quick 22-minute episode. You get kind of a fun adventure, and then you can kind of move on in your day. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take up too much of your uh you know, uh, faculties or whatever to sort of, uh, try and figure it out. So, I mean, to me, it's just really fun. I see. Um, That's good. It's like kind of the antithesis of watching something like the wire for me lately, where it's like, <laughs> I, I watch it for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, however long it is. And I'm just like devastated or just like so involved in the story to where it's hard to want to, it's like, I, I want to just reflect on what I just watched because there's always something in terms of the uh, sociological implications of what's taking place, but also just the way this the, the 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 mythology continues to mount and the different characters and sort of having to keep up with this world is it's kind of a challenge, but just like a really um, invigorating challenge every time with every episode. I just I I wish I would have seen this show when everybody else was when it was first on the air, but I'm glad I'm finally catching up with it. Stephen, have you watched The Wire at all? Uh, yes, I have. Um, yeah. My uh, my old roommate in college uh, basically watched the entire series in one, I guess, one semester. So it was pretty much on all the time. I mean, I didn't necessarily watch every single episode, but literally I'd come home and it'd just be like gunshots or just tense, you know, cool music. And I mean, it's just a, it's a very thrilling show. It definitely, again, like something, I mean, obviously it, the, the Wire is, has much more depth than a, than a kid show like Avengers, but they both operate on the same level where you're just insanely interested about what happens next. Yeah, and especially, you know, I, I value something to where I am not going to have any other distractions going on. My phone is off, my laptop is down when I'm watching something like The Wire because I'm so, you know, uh, involved with what's Yeah, you're not given a chance to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I love shows that do that, and I love movies that do the same, that give you that opportunity. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about something, and uh, I was almost tempted, like, at this point in the show to, like, do a little, you know, on Wayne's World, go and do, like, a little flashback to an earlier episode. Um, but honest, I'm sure Patrick can can recall when we discussed Blowout on, on the podcast yeah. for, the, for the Brian De Palma episode, because sure ba- back then... Uh, and that's, that's sort of one of our more infamous back, episodes. Back then, uh, hoes didn't want me, but uh, <laughs> now, now I'm rich, hoes all up on me. Right, exactly. Correctly. Yeah. Um, that is exactly what I was thinking. No, go ahead. Uh, no. Um, so I got a chance to watch this on the big screen, and it was really cool because I'm such a huge fan of this film. And that uh, particular episode was um, the, of the podcast was really interesting for me because as Patrick was discussing his quibbles with the with the third act, I mean, this was obviously after I had seen it at that point in time. Yeah. And then now I'm watching it with Patrick's, you know, uh, criticisms of where the movie goes in my head as I'm watching it this time on the big screen. And obviously I have a huge, immense love for the movie. I love 
you know, a lot of the more quiet scenes involving him editing, as as we discussed on the show. And so there is a moment where John Travolta's character makes a choice, a decision that Patrick has uh, gone on record to say is a betrayal of his character, that it's something that he would not have decided to, to do at all. Uh, it feels contrived, like it's a, a screenplay manipulation of sorts where it's like, oh, we got to have... We got to figure out a way to create some sort of, you know, big spectacular uh, climax. So let's have this character do something that's completely out of character. And um, my experience in the past, like the two or three times I've seen it before, that never really occurred to me. And so now I am pretty much on board with Patrick because <laughs> because well, every now and then we have this film mo- ruiner. <laughs> every, no, 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 no. Every every now and then. Every now and then, I, I, I like I, I take I take you know what he has to say in, <laughs> into account, and uh, I really felt like this time there's 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 actually a flashback sequence involving John Travolta. Uh, you know he 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 has one, an undercover cop wearing a wire, and it goes completely wrong, and he feels like immense guilt and frustration with himself for going through with it the way he had and basically he asks nancy allen's character to do it the same way now wouldn't he have learned from his mistake like from that devastating mistake that he made that choice he made in which somebody actually got killed before like the choice that travolta has really rung false for me this time based on rewatching it and thinking okay what why does this feel like a betrayal of his character? Yes, it does feel like a betrayal of his I, character. I don't think I, I don't think back when we did the poem and stuff, but I even connected that last scene with the uh with the flashback. But it is funny that they distinctly point out uh here is what he regrets and then they have him do it again. I yeah, it just I, repeats the same thing and <laughs> I don't know, it just doesn't and the payoff is really not not that emotionally resonant for me. I think I don't have a problem with him deciding to use her scream at the very end. I feel like that's kind of like a really sort of depressing, pessimistic note to end on. But uh, and also, she she screams at a moment where there are no fireworks going on on in, in, in the background because it, initially I was thinking. Yeah, with all those fireworks going on, how can he isolate well, her scream? It's, but it's it's it is crazy either way. I know like it just doesn't re- feel that's and I, that wasn't a huge problem for me was that 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 he records her scream off of like a wire like a wiretap she's wearing and then he puts <laughs> it into a major motion picture like that is ridiculous. No he matter must how be a many great sound editor, you must he just, just like. You know, that's fine. Tweaked a lot no, of knobs. Yeah, I have no problem. With no, I don't that. have a problem with that. But I agree now with. I don't think that yeah. his character should have done that at all. I don't think I he and especially because he's at a level of paranoia to where he should be like extra cautious. That was where my thing was. Like a whole movie is him being paranoid and extra cautious, except for that one part. And I and I, I it's still I still love the movie. Oh, I do too. I love the movie yeah. still. But I think you you made a great point with that because. I try to be conscious of those things, but sometimes you're just so involved in your own way that, you know, that's why I love doing the show. That's why I like reading reviews, because someone can bring up something that is actually a really good, valid criticism that makes me rethink the movie. But it doesn't necessarily mean I love the movie any less. I'm just saying that I, I agree that it's a, it's a flaw that shouldn't be overlooked. 
but yeah, Blowout's a great movie, and I that's you know the that our podcast episode of De Palma is a lot of fun, and if you haven't checked that out, you should. And also check out Blowout because it rules. But I definitely wanted to bring up the fact that once again, maybe this is like the third or fourth time where this has happened in our friendship. I just want to acknowledge that Patrick was right. Yeah, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it is sweet. It is. <laughs> so what do you watch, Patrick? What's What's been going on? Oh, man. Well, I did watch Prometheus. <laughs> no. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, shit. No one Stop. has seen that. Um. Oh, man. There is... You, you'll see. You know, so I, I talk, again, I talk about it with the film drive guys, but... Uh, I didn't like the movie, and I'd still recommend it just for one amazing scene in it. And if you've seen it, you already know what I'm talking about. Um, I, uh, Does an alien pop out of the vagina? No, no, no. It's 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 way better than that. Okay, good. Uh, I'm not going to say anymore. It's way better than that. But um, uh, I saw I saw two other films that weren't for the podcast, uh, and then and weren't Prometheus. One was an aerobic exploitation movie. Uh, <laughs> You know, do you know that uh, uh, in the '80s aerobics were a big thing? There was an aerobics. <laughs> there was there was a national aerobics competition. Did you know this? No, I didn't. It's is this true. a documentary? This is not a documentary. Hmm. This is like a. It's it's. What's crazy to me is I thought it, it was played on TCM Underground. It's called Heavenly Bodies, um, and I thought it was going to be uh, softcore porn based around like I thought it was going to be sort of like a sex comedy type thing based around the world of aerobics. And it is just very pervy as and sort of exploitation-y as, as, as far as, like, like there's not a single scene in which there isn't a woman wearing spandex and, uh. like, just showing off her ass. But, like, it's surprisingly, like, the camera doesn't do a lot of close-ups of asses. It doesn't, like, there's oh, no, well, there's no part it. where... Where it just pans across all these hard nipples, like it, just, like there's a lot it's of places kind of describing things. All the thing that I love about yeah. movies, yeah, yeah. No, I mean Doesn't these are these are all of the reasons why the Edison invented it. But, um, <laughs> but like it legitimately is a uh, it's not, it's sort of a let's save the rec center kind of a movie where it, they're this scrappy upstart gym, but because they're their aerobics instructors are just so great and so inspired. Like, oh, she's one of the best aerobics instructors ever. So they're they're really making it. Uh, <laughs> this little gym, and then <laughs> and then there's this aerobic star who's supposed <laughs> to get the role of a local aerobics TV show, but she gets. But instead of her, it's the great gym leader that gets the role because she's just so good. Um, and then the star challenge. So the, uh, it's like it really is just like really uh, shockingly earnest and sincere movie about how great aerobics is and how huh. it's just making everyone's lives better. So the best part is um, the final climax because it's not fucking competitive. Like it, I don't like they're like, well, how do we make this? How do we have some kind of exciting sports climax? Um, so the final climax... The evil blonde kid from Karate Kid comes yeah, in. Yeah, it's basically the evil blonde kid's gym versus mm-hmm. Heavenly Bodies, which is the name of the young upstart uh, Ralph Macchio gym. Uh. Uh, <laughs> except they're all women. There's no uh, there's no dudes. But um, at the end, the, the evil woman's like, all right, I'll challenge you to an aerobics off. And it's basically... And at this point in the movie, it turns into they shoot horses, don't they? Where people are doing aerobics for like eight hours straight and just like, ah, and they're just like, 
they're just like their feet are bleeding and, just, and which is amazing to me because it's this movie about how the joy of aerobics and how great it is and the last 20 minutes are about the pain and suffering of aerobics and just in general how horrifying exercise is <laughs> Um, I don't want to spoil it, because uh, maybe it has a shocking down ending, but uh, one of the teams wins, uh, and then the other team just fucking, like, collapses, and their and their lungs don't work anymore. Like, it, it's really, like, surprisingly brutal for what was a really fun movie with a bunch of, with a bunch of music from Sparks. You know the huh. band Sparks? What? Yeah, the electronic dance park. There's this great song uh, called "Breaking Out of Prison" that plays like it's one. It's one of those movies where you know they're very inspired by McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where uh, they repeat the same three songs. It's, oh, yeah, it's, it's of course. Yeah, it's definitely not that they didn't have the budget for a l- larger soundtrack, but. So well, I mean, hear... Altman definitely tackled the fashion industry, so right. maybe he should have done aerobics. Right. So. Uh, so. Like, just about every 15 minutes throughout the movie, you'll see more people doing aerobics, and it'll just be like, breaking out of prison, da-da-da-da, and then it'll cut to some melodrama about how, like, her meat-headed boyfriend doesn't understand her, or is like, oh, you, you're doing aerobics all the time, you got no time for us, like, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and she'll just be like, oh, I just, I just gotta... I just got to do aerobics. Breaking out of prison, <laughs> baby. I just automatically think of the montage from What Hot American Summer. <laughs> yeah, it's basically that. It's it's a wonderful film. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure that since it was just on TCM, I'm sure you could probably find some kind of uh, high-definition torrent of it or something. Is this also how you saw Last Summer? Uh wasn't this, a TCM? No, well, TCM, that or wasn't it, an underground. Oh, okay. Because last that was actually part of the month of Oscars. You know how they all play Oscar nominees? Because oh. last summer, uh, what's her name? The amazing... Barbara Hershey? No, 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 the supporting actress uh, who has that amazing uh, monologue about her brother. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, you haven't seen it yet? <laughs> okay, well, there's one actress who was like in nothing else, but she's incredible in, hmm. in uh, last summer, and uh, she was nominated for Best Supporting oh, okay. Actress. Um, I also saw Before Stonewall, which if it's on Netflix instant, and if you haven't seen it, you need to because it's about the history. Is that of, a part of the Before Sunset, Before Sunrise trilogy? Yes, yes, it's about Stonewall Jackson. Okay, um, falling in love with Ethan Hawke. It, 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 <laughs> no, but it is about it is about the history of uh, homosexuality um, before the Stonewall riots hmm. that sort of brought homosexuality out into the open and where you know gay, the gay rights fight really first started. And beyond being like just a fascinating sort of here's the thing about uh the history of gay rights that's so great number one it sort of it combines the sort of like a feeling of oppression and over you know and 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 rising up against power that you know something like the civil rights you know movement had but it also has sort of because everyone was closeted and secret and they all had codes and they were all afraid of going to jail just for meeting about talking about being gay like it has a feel of like a French resistance movie where they're like they'd have lookouts outside of someone's apartment just because too many women with short haircuts were going into one mm-hmm. you know like place one building and like it's all like it is the kind of documentary where it's just talking heads talking about history but it's but instead of talking about but because there was no history history there was no legislation that happened right. there was no before before Stonewall, there was there was no real organized movement. It's all really personal stories, 
which hmm. are all just like each one's more heartbreaking and incredible than the last. Um, and then you get to the sort of the mid to late fifties, and then you and then she uh, the uh, director interviews all these. Uh, like lesbian, like lesbians who are in biker gangs, and they are the greatest. Oh, wow. They are the like 1950s lesbians are the greatest people who have ever lived. They're just so fucking <laughs> badass and and so great. And they're just like she's. And there's this uh, one woman who's like a Native American. I can't remember her name, but she's telling this story about how someone like just screamed Dyke out of a car, and she pulled him out of the car and just started beating the shit out of him. And I'm like, <laughs> that's the best i've ever heard yeah um and it's and it's like important part of american history it's part that is not taught in schools um but is really fascinating um and you know it's important culture and an important cultural force in america so uh, if you haven't seen before stonewall and you have netflix instant it's really fun to watch and it's really entertaining and heartbreaking and all those great things you want a documentary to be Mm. i will definitely occupy that one yeah Thank you. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Wow, what a wide variety of things mm-hmm. we watched this week. Watched this week. Yeah. And then we can, we can gracefully... Breaking out of prison. We can break out into the next segment. segment. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen, for helping. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the director of the episode, right, Patrick? Yeah. G- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, G- for a moment, G- I turned G- to Macho Man Randy Savage. G- 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 Jane Campion. Campion. Cup, 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 Peon. She's a goddamn New Zealand hero making movies as that damn and really close. Of the magnet driving right into your skulls. Feministic, globalistic, smashing patriarchy shit, you're feeling it. Copy on! Yeah, 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 she makes you feel that shit. Copy on! And you know it is that real shit. Copy on! Jane Campion is a filmmaker, screenwriter, and director from New Zealand. Campion is the second of four women ever to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Director. She also is the first female filmmaker in history to receive the Palme d'Or for direction. Campion was born in Wellington, New Zealand, and she graduated with a degree in anthropology from Victoria University of Wellington in 1975. In 1976, she attended Chelsea Art School in London and traveled all all throughout Europe. She graduated with a painting major... And amongst other things, she wound up creating her first short film called Tissues in 1981. In 1982, she began studying at the Australian Film and Television School, where she made other short films, such as Passionless Moments. Her first feature was an eccentric little family melodrama called Sweetie. And she followed that up with a TV miniseries about author Janet Frame called An Angel at My Table. But then it wasn't until 1993 where international recognition followed her. And as I said earlier, she won the Palme d'Or at the 1993 Cannes Film Festival for The Piano. And eventually it won a couple of Academy Awards and she was nominated for the Best Original Screenplay as well. Um, She sort of uh, highlights the concept, and I, I think this was sort of expressed a little bit in an interview that I just watched uh, with Meg Ryan, 
that she has this uh, kind of like unusual, unconventional take on romance and trying to deconstruct it in a way that's kind of challenging for some because she doesn't always see the 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 happy ending. And I kind of I really respond to that concept and the fact that she's really like she's all about emotion and, and mood and feeling and she she has this choice to sort of foreground the interior of you know someone's conflict and, and their thoughts um and she was inspired by guys like Bunyel and uh I don't know we've we've talked a, a lot about you know how some directors aren't necessarily an actor's director and I think that there are some film and filmmaker. Well, there's some filmmakers that aren't always the best storytellers. They, you know, I, I think Campion doesn't always rely on structure or convention and decides that you know the atmosphere or the um, allegory that she's trying to convey is 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 the sort of the top priority. And I kind of respond to like the mood of her films first and foremost. Um, and I, like something like the piano is again one of those things where the elements come together really beautifully for me because I, I, I do like period pieces, I do like classical music, um, and I think it's a really sort of poignant uh, expression of femininity and how she sees it as being fiercely repressed at that time in in her country and she you know was really fascinated with anthropology and she sort of was interested in the history of that time period and, and uh, especially in regards to how women were treated and how they basically had no voice and were sort of forced into these marriages where, you know, they didn't, weren't allowed to be their own person. And I think that she's, her films are kind of all about self-actualization through a feminine perspective. And I, really appreciate that about her films and some are definitely more successful than others uh and for me i think the piano might be her best steven what are your thoughts on jane campion why i mean I, you expressed to me that you wanted to be on this particular episode and i'm curious at what your history with her and how you feel about her overall i i think in particular i i will I mean, I just really like the piano. I think what it really comes down to it, and as I started to explore her other filmography, I'm starting to understand maybe why the piano is the one movie that really does it for me and not so much anything else, um, surprisingly. Um, and I think it just helps that um, I'm also somebody who, because uh, uh, Jan Campion, you know, New Zealand filmmaker, um, and uh, I, at one point, lived in New Zealand for a while. So I became that guy who wanted to gobble up, you know, any New Zealand film. And um, although there's some interesting New Zealand, uh, you know, because uh, New Zealand cinema first started with Sleeping Dogs, which is kind of like a, uh, uh, I don't know what the word for it. It's like a, a laid back revolution movie starring hmm. Sam Neill. Um, it was Sam Neill's first film in 1977. Um, and there's a lot of other interesting uh, New Zealand films. Once for Warriors uh, comes to mind, Smash Palace, uh, uh, The Quiet Earth. But I think after seeing the piano, it w- the piano is actually such a. A lot of New Zealand cinema is in some ways very genre and also very um, and it very uh, violent and slightly hallucinatory. And I think Jan Campion takes some of those qualities. But I think at least with the piano, I think it's a film that. Um, tied in with its poetry and its um, uh, 
you know, just again, um, I know Patrick was talking about the piano, the sort of melodrama. I think those aspects to me, I kind of like it and kind of elevate it to a level that just makes it like, um, I don't know, to me, the movie's just a very, really um, haunting, like, poetry piece. Again, like you're saying, Jim, that maybe she's not the best storyteller, per se, but I think even with a movie like In the Cut, she definitely, um, she settles on on a mood, and I think that's, in some ways with her films, that's her most successful um, uh, thing about her movies. Um, and, her, and her sex scenes are actually really interesting, too, I think, um, at least in, in the cut, which there's a lot of, and even the moments in uh, the piano, which I think were, I mean, just, I mean, again, I think a lot of people wonder like, Oh, what was sex like in the 1800s? And I don't know if that's like an overriding <laughs> thing that's going on in your mind when you're watching the piano. But I mean, I think, I think those scenes are interesting enough that they are saying something about the movie and, and the way um, Holly Hunter's character, um, you know, how she finds, um, you know, self-actualization through being able to express her sexuality when, you know, obviously yeah. she had sex to have a child, but um, the way she kind of uses it to navigate her way through, through being in a tiny New Zealand um, settlement, I guess you would say in the South Island. Um, I mean, and, and that, I don't know, it's just a very powerful, you know, again, it, it's a very beautiful movie, but I think it, the mood really sells it. And I think it's just, has a lot of interesting story beats and I really like Sam Neill in it and Holly Hunter. And I really like Anna Paquin and, you know, despite Harvey Keitel's, uh, I mean, I think he's, you know, I, I mean, I guess you can, you know, you can make quibbles about it, but I, I think he, he makes a quiet, um, somebody was saying he's a benign, um, Kurtz like character from, uh, uh, you know, like almost like, a the opposite of what, uh, Marlon Brando's character is in apocalypse now, which is, is kind of an interesting reading. Hmm. Um, on a on a trivia note, um, other people who went to the University of Vic, which is the University Jane Campion graduated from, were uh, the the guys from Flight of the Concords, Sam Neill himself, uh, Fran Walsh, uh, co-writer Lord of the Rings, uh, the movie adaptation, and then I also actually attended that university for a while too. Yeah. So anyway, just a little point of uh, trivia. Um, but yeah, I really like the piano a lot. It's just it it just hit me. And I was actually there, like, in the country when I watched it. So I think that also, um, you know, Jim, you always talk about on the podcast, you know, your very personal connections to films. And I think for me at the time when I first watched it, uh, because I was actually there in, you know, I didn't live in the middle of a settlement, but, um, you know, just traveling around the country and I kind of uh, made that connection. Um, are you guys familiar with the Bluebeard fairy tale that's featured in this, the film? No. Mm-mm. Um, if I may break it down for a second, cause I think maybe that might help Patrick. If, if you get a chance to rewatch or something, it might help you kind of, or maybe it's a way into the film. Um, a Bluebeard is a fairy tale. Again, it was written, you know, kind of like how all these fairy tales were all written, uh, Cinderella, uh, Snow White, all these kind of old fairy tales. Bluebeard was one of them, but, um, it's not a, it's not a popular one that gets retold or, you know, Disney didn't make a version of it, but essentially it's an ugly, wealthy man who keeps marrying women, um, young girls, um, but they keep disappearing and nobody knows why it's just, he gets remarried again and again, but nobody wants to marry him cause he's ugly, but he's rich. So people will marry Bluebeard. Hmm. Uh, the fairy tale basically begins when he marries a new girl. He has this wealthy house, shows her around but he has to leave for a business trip. Kind of interesting, like how Sam Neill's character 
um, you know, is constantly leaving, um, you know, to go track land and stuff in, in the piano. Um, and so one time Bluebeard leaves on a trip and he gives her keys, uh, the, the princess, um, the keys to his house. But then he has this one special key where he's like, don't go in this room. You can go to all the other rooms, but don't go to this one. So, of course, she goes into that room and she discovers the dead bodies, like basically a pit filled with all the dead bodies of all his former wives. Um, she's very alarmed by this, tries to wash the blood off the key because she dropped it. She can't can't get it off. So then essentially what happens, he finds out. He says, oh, I'm going to kill you. Locks her in a tower. Um, but she calls out to her family and her brothers. They go and kill Bluebeard. They take his wealth and they live happily. And then she lives happily ever after with her family. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, I mean, one thing about Jane Campion, I feel like she injects a lot of literature literally into her work. And um, I think that that fairy tale definitely has a lot of parallels with the narrative of the piano itself. So anyway, for people who aren't familiar with, uh, the Bluebeard fairy tale. I think it, for me, it also added another uh, layer to the film, knowing hmm. that. Interesting correlation. And now for a completely different reaction. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm not at this point. It, it's uh, I, I don't like period pieces at all. There's something like there's just something about the sensibility. There's something like like every I, there's something about the interiors. Of, of those homes and there's something about the costumes they wear and the way they speak like everything is completely contrary to to my personal aesthetic to the point where it is it is such a challenge just to stay in with the movie um, so like I, the piano probably didn't really have a chance with me um, this is I don't this is not the piano's fault I'm not saying it's a bad movie honestly the DVD I saw had no subtitles and I'm crazy. Uh, it, it had subtitles crazy. for, it had subtitles for her, for her, uh, sign language and it had the Maori subtitles, oh, but okay. I mean, just like regular English subtitles is what I need because I'm, I'm actually hard of hearing, especially when it comes to accents. Um, mm. so I'm completely hundred percent. I opened to the idea that, um, that there was just a lot of actual dialogue I didn't get, which is why, uh, like literally none of the characters made any sense to me. I couldn't follow uh, why she fell in love with Harvey Keitel. I couldn't follow why after they had sex, Harvey Keitel gave back the piano. I couldn't follow why when Sam Neill found them having sex that he reacted the way he did. I couldn't follow how he, she went back to Sam Neill and was sort of at one point kissing, you know, him. And he was like, why are you doing this to me? Like, I didn't understand any of it, and I'm completely open to the idea that it, there's it's literally just dialogue I missed. But on top of that, like, just there's something about period pieces. I tried to watch Jane Campion's Bright Star. Um, uh, that wouldn't work. Like, it, I think the only real period piece that ever stuck with me have to be like kind of almost subversively uh, modern in their sensibilities and with their uh, with their sort of energy. I think the you know Jane Eyre, which I'm not even a big fan of, again. But like I was able to watch and almost enjoy Jane Eyre, the Jane Eyre that came out, I believe, in 2011. Um, Michael Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. Right, right. I was able to – I you know the uh, 2005 Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley. I was able to almost enjoy that. Like, That's one of my favorites actually. 
There are, uh, I still really want to watch Ang Lee's Sense and Sensibility because I believe that – isn't that more of a comedy? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little – it's lighter. It's definitely lighter. Like because I mean I, I was – you know, I, I when I did theater, I was in a production of Importance of Being Earnest. Like that sort of thing I can deal with. Is that um, about the Ernest from Ernest Goes to Camp? Yes, exactly. The the Importance of Being Ernest P. Worrell right. uh, was the full title. and nice. um, But no, but there's just something about period pieces that never connects with me and it's just – it's a complete – like just blind spot in I don't know how to read them like here here is the central problem for me they are always about love and but their their ideas of love are the completely different like in this film in the piano what like to me love is you you meet someone that you like and you want to spend time with and then you then you build a shared history and then suddenly you have that and then they become part of you whereas in this it's all tran- like and in most period pieces it's all transactional and it's all built mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. hidden glances and it's all built on love at first sight and all sorts of things that are completely 100% foreign to my experience that's not and so i have no in i have no way to relate to these characters um and again not saying that's any problem with the films that's my problem um Do you it's think just it's a personal thing so if you were to see a, a, a period piece, but more of a different genre, you think, because I'm thinking of like, I recently saw, or a couple months ago, I saw The Woman in Black, which is, it's a, it's also a Victorian type period piece. Oh, I, I mean, I, I love Edgar Allan Poe. I love, I I have no problem with uh, even a lot of the, um, the others. Charles, Charles Dickens, because yeah. it's literally just the upper class where everything is so mannered that to me they're not even acting like humans anymore <laughs> that I it's hard for me to have an in and it's hard for me to care about anyone mm-hmm. for me, like in this piano is about a woman who has to choose between a sl- like between loving her slave master and loving her rapist uh and to I don't me- think she perceives it as rape it might be it definitely might be I, it's <laughs> sexual assault perceive- of some kind it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I again, I think it it starts out that way. I think it, it transforms into something else for her, which is and a it's problem. Not very clear. Which is problematic. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, uh, and again, uh, this movie I can't even accurately judge because I miss so much of it just mm-hmm. by not being able to hear properly and having to infer what's happening um, just by you know the events that are unfolding in screen. So I have nothing like I'm I'm glad that you guys really like the piano and see a lot in it because I like most period pieces. I just got nothing out of it. Um, it's and I, I'm not like I'm not asking people to convince me like, you know, it's the same for me with jazz music. There's nothing I like about like or, jazz music to me. Or is Hal just, Hartley. <laughs> well, right. Hal Hartley is different, I believe, because Hal Hartley is and that that's actually sort of goes back to when we later we'll talk about Sweetie. Um, and the, actually, I do want to dispute one thing. You said that sort of Jane Campion's an acquired taste, but she hasn't had one single taste to acquire. Um, mm-hmm. Like none of her films are the same. You look at you look at the piano; it's nothing like Sweetie, and it's nothing yeah. like Bright Eye. Or I wouldn't say she's an auteur or anything. I I just think that well, no, no, her, her films are all connected thematically. She's interested mm-hmm. in the same things. Her all of her she's, sexuality is very steeped in sort of. Uh, you know, master and domineering and S and M and things yeah. like that. Uh, she the, the 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 female subjectivity. She's a f- you know, she's clearly a, a feminist filmmaker working out feminist. You know, working on feminist issues. Mm-hmm. I'm not disputing any of that. I'm not. I'm just saying. Uh, you know, 
um, you can't really call her an acquired taste because in the cut is nothing like the piano, which is nothing like Sweetie, you know, which mm-hmm. is nothing like an angel at a, a angel at my table. But I don't think you're the. I guess I was more or less referring to the piano because I know there are people who have a disconnect with it, um, and she even receives like some criticism, like of how how she portrayed the uh, Maori tribe. Um, yeah, well, I, I didn't want to bring that up because, again, I thought maybe I was missing something. But it is, like, very racist how they're just, like, comically dumb. And they're just like, oh, it's real life. And they're like, let's get them. <laughs> and they're all just, like, they are just sort of this minority peanut gallery for the white people to tell their story. Mm-hmm. Like, as a background for the white people to tell their story. Um, but, again, I know sure nothing. That's, that's not what she's interested in. I, but I, and that I know nothing about the, the history of New Zealand. I know nothing about the <clears throat> history of Maori. I don't know if if the way she portrayed them is loaded culturally or not. So I couldn't say. But uh, I did definitely get that vibe, at least. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, for me, maybe, again, there's a little bit of transference in that, you know, there's a, a period in my life where I didn't like hanging out with people. I didn't really like talking very much. And expressing myself through playing guitar or piano or whatever was sort of my outlet to really, you know, communicate in some way. And I guess maybe there's a little bit of that in this movie for me, you know, in a different context, I guess, with with how Holly Hunter is literally has, you know, she has no voice. She has no means or, like, she she's completely, like, too internalized and... You know, Sam Neill comes along and, you know, decides that he wants, you know, he barely has control over the land and barely has control over his own life in general. So he sees her as an opportunity like, well, if I can't control everything else, I can at least control this person. And to the point where, you know, I'm going to, you know, in, in some way or another, not literally castrate, but just take away her 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 means of of expressing herself through through music and that whole sequence is pretty devastating to me and the emotional response I have to the end of this movie is not necessarily to the same extent as fearless but the I, the idea of her her will to to live and to want and to instead of just like you know basically drowning and and letting yeah. herself go with that piano um that that's a really powerful moment for me like I I really respond to like that character um conflict of you know survival yeah survival for sure i mean that's why i mean that's one of the things that to me again keeps me coming back to it besides um you know all the other things about it that i like it's just an interesting look at somebody you know being put in a situation where again based on the, the time that it's set in just literally finding any way she can to to survive this because she could just you know, she never for a moment, I think, accepts um, her situation. She never is like, okay, well, I guess I can't have my piano. Oh, I can't have this, right? She's always fighting back in, in one way or another, whether it's, um, again, sort of getting under, you know, Sam, uh, Samuel, Alistair Stewart, Samuel's character's skin, or, you know, even the fact that she tries to, near the end, you know, say, like, she wonders, well, maybe what if I did accept him as my husband and started to uh, embrace that idea. And, you know, as he gets uncomfortable with her uh, touching him, which I think was a very, to me, one of my favorite scenes where she's trying to touch, uh, 
touch his ass basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he like he doesn't have control over anything and he can't even handle that idea, even though she is embracing him for the first time. Then she realizes like, this will never, I can never accept this. And, you know, and it's, you know, you know, it's a happy ending. She finds a way out and she ends up getting, um, you know, through some, you know, through, you know, losing her finger and one thing or another and losing the piano, she still ends up uh, surviving in the end and winning. And I think that's, and it's an interesting story of somebody winning and surviving while also losing a lot too. And I think, you know, it's, it's that idea of, of surviving and prevailing, um, but also having consequences happen to you as well too. You don't get out all clean right. and shiny. Yeah, you have to lose some things along the way. And so that's that's what I really like about the movie. Um, or that sticks with me even now. So. Yeah, and and again, like in the interview with uh with Meg Ryan, she she mentions that uh you know Jane Campion doesn't necessarily believe in the romantic, you know, ideal that uh you know Western culture seems to um you know uh reiterate over time and she feels like and and I and again, there's there's this sort of like mysterious, you know, romantic mystification of sexuality in this movie, and it is like completely impulsive and unpredictable and dangerous and all those things that you know I, are kind of hard to figure out because you know I'm not a hundred percent sure why you know Harvey Keitel in particular is the catalyst for her sort of sexual liberation, you know, because. He, I think she, I think she sees in him that he was somebody who ran away, and he's also kind of an outsider too. He he maybe thought he could get away and start a new life here um, in New Zealand, but it doesn't seem to be working out all that well for him. He's not a landowner. He's not wealthy. He doesn't have a, a wife with him or anything like that. He's you know he he hasn't succeeded in the transition as well, and maybe she find sympathy in that or it's maybe it's her own way of gaining power over someone else. But yeah. And you know, I guess by giving her the power to, you know, bargain with him, that is some kind of liberation. That's some kind of like, well, I have free will in, in this, in this transaction. And, uh, but it's still, it's still, you know, kind of, uh, I think that there is some ambiguity there, and I think there's a lot of. I think, especially you know, given the 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 piano itself, there is really uh, a lot of black and white in her portrayal of of sexuality because there, there's really no clear cut you know reason for for exactly why things transpire the way they do, and I find that really intriguing to watch and. You know, we we should mention you know Anna Paquin too because I think I, 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 I think I was, she's really good. I don't know why. She, I think she is capable. Like I think she. I don't think she's any better or worse than like I don't know the little boy and stepmom. Like she's just a little. <laughs> she's a little kid who you know yells a lot and then looks curious when she needs to look curious. Like mm-hmm. there's no scene that's like oh that's an interesting character. There's no. There's no real character there. Like, I mean, I, I think maybe it's her, maybe Anna Paquin doing the accent. Maybe that's why they felt like she deserved the <laughs> She's I, like, I, I, well, I look, know. she did it better than Harvey Keitel did it. So nice. nice. <laughs> but I mean, she, I mean, what's really cool about her as a, as a character, as a child is that, you know, a child is very impulsive and emotional and 
you know, this child isn't something that even, uh, you know, Holly Hunter's character can control. She's impulsive. And I mean, that's what I liked about the character is, you know, she was willing to sell out her own mom, you know, because she was unhappy about this. And that to me rang true very much, at least as in terms of a realistic portrayal of a child. So I'm not saying that maybe, you know, you know, deserves her an Oscar for that, but I thought that was just a very interesting, um, you know, way to, you know, it felt, it felt real to me. So, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. There, there is definitely, again, I think I do gravitate towards movies like this that are, you know, not clear cut in exactly why things happen the way they do. I mean, you know, ambiguity is something that, uh, as long as I have an emotional response to it, I I feel like it's a, you know, a, a worthwhile experience to have. And, um, you know, it, there is there is something about, you know, her openness, I guess, with sort of portraying sexual liberation and and, you know, having these interesting ideas about gender and sexuality in that time period. It's really, you know, compelling to watch. And clearly she, you know, she wants to make a point about gender ideology and how it's like. You know, they're like I said, it can't be sexuality and gender cannot be seen as this black versus white issue. Many, many people can't be labeled as one extreme or another. And sometimes yeah, a black you, versus white issue would be a <laughs> racial. That would yeah, be. that's true. Well, <laughs> I think that it's you know, there, there's just something about everything that uh, I really, really think Holly Hunter is an amazing actress. And I think yeah. this role, I mean, to to say everything without you know using her voice I, I really feel that that drives this movie and makes it re- something really special I, I agree um it's funny to to call back to what's going on this week Sigourney Weaver was originally uh the first choice to play uh, uh that character um oh yeah hmm. how wouldn't she be like much much older wouldn't that I, I think that might have been yeah, Holly Hunter struck me as being in her early to mid twenties in this film, probably thirties. Really? She, Maybe. Yeah, Holly Hunter's. Well, Holly Hunter's fifty four. She mm-hmm. uh, the character I thought looked like she was in her mid to early twenties. Yeah. I don't know. I th- I think you know. And she had, maybe it's just the the closing and opening voiceover is so childlike. That yeah. That. Because I don't know, I want to know what you guys think of that. Because I, I watched it again and I forgot that you know that that because it's not Anna Paquin's voice or or you know that you know they say it's her inner voice. And I'm just I'm, I'm wondering why. I mean, I feel like the most obvious answer is well, that was the last time she heard herself speak when she was a kid or something like that. But yeah, I mean, there's obviously a reason she later. stopped speaking at age six. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm again. I, I don't have a lot to say about this movie, but uh, you know, that it could have something as, to do with her. Father. That was that's definitely what I got out of it was that um, that was the last time that she stopped speaking, and also that's sort of her position is she is treated like a child. You know, like that's yeah. how women are treated. They're they're the children, and the men are the grown ups, and they have to do what they're told. You know. Yeah, oh, I, I, I instinctively <laughs> respond to that. Um, not necessarily like role playing, but but just that that whole concept gets kind of an automatic response from me. Like the fact that that's 
how it was perceived at that time, and that's that was the norm, is uh, infuriating for me to, to to experience in any movie, really. But I think that the, the the fact that there's like this, it might be more metaphorical, but there's transformation of you know speech into music, and then music into sex, and I don't know. I think that's something that you know plausible in its own way and in the, in the, in, in, at least in the way that she presents it and like there's moments like even just watching um, Harvey Keitel's character like polish the piano really seductively <laughs> I don't know I just think that's really fucking awesome to see in a movie I mean it felt real to me for this whole movie just feels really real to me raw it feels very raw to me and that's why I like about it well I can't wait to talk about it in the cut yeah because that's, uh, to, like, that's raw. Detective Malloy. Her body, a part of her body to be exact, is found in the garden outside your window. Am I a murder suspect? Look, I was, uh, I was wondering if you wanted to go for a beer or something. <laughs> Somebody asked me out. You gotta go. Just for the exercise, you should go. You don't remember a girl with long blue fingernails with diamonds in the that's Angela Sands. I think that's a girl that was murdered. I swear to God, I've never seen you or her before in my entire fucking life. I think he's a liar. You think he's a liar or he is a liar? Put your hand between your legs. Inside your panties. It came into the room. It's here in the circle. Everything that you guys have said about the piano is how I feel about In the Cut, except I can relate to In the Cut, and In the Cut, they feel like real people. <laughs> um, this is sort of the movie that got Campion in director jail, as I, if, if I can recall. There was a huge backlash against uh, this movie. Um, yeah, when the first time I saw it in the theater, it did not strike a chord with me. But it is, it is the exact, like, it is practically a remake of The Piano. It is the same sort of story of this woman who is sort of looking for a voice and she ha- she is testing her sexuality and she doesn't know where her sexuality is taking her and she doesn't know how much control she has over it. And there's, and that is, you know, and, but what changes everything is, Again, because I couldn't hear, you know, or maybe miss so much of the piano's dialogue. Like, to me, Holly Hunter in that movie just felt like a cipher. Like, I had no idea what she was thinking at any given time. Um, I think Meg Ryan is such a fascinating character uh, in this movie. Um, I would agree with that. I think I think it's a really well-observed uh, character as far as details about her being a writer and how she lives in details and... Obviously, the most striking thing about this film is the way it's shot. Uh, it's got very, very, very narrow depth of field. It's constantly shifting in and out of focus. Yeah, it's very blurry. And, it's, sir, and if it was just it, – it, like, it serves multiple purposes. If it was just, well, this is how she feels and this is a visual representation, it would get really annoying quick. But the whole film is edited very dreamlike and that adds a lot to it. And it's set up beautifully you're able in to the sort opening of, credits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, and you're able to sort of jump from scene to scene – um, not like we see with scenes very ending very inconclusively and you're able to accept it because the whole thing just feels like a dream. And unfortunately Meg Ryan does that really annoying movie thing that is mostly in like bad teen horror movies 
where like they're sitting in class and someone is like good versus evil like and they're writing on the yeah that's a trope that really irks me like in some movies like it just makes me laugh like i i get a kick out of it in like halloween i mean at least it ties like together with the book she's discussing i mean at least it, it has that but i can't stand it where like it has a scene with yeah, the professor just on like, the chalkboard st- saying, this is what it's about. And especially when it's just like stream of consciousness, not the same as stream of conscience. Like, Isn't it, Doesn't she even say at one point how many women need to be, get killed for it to be interesting? Yeah. And there's yeah, three. How many, how many old ladies? How many old ladies need to be killed? Right. And I like that her like her character is like it is uh it is sort of a um paradox of she's very much assured but she's very much insecure and she and she puts up a tough shell but you can see right through it like the way that she deals with her student by the way speaking more of weird racial overtones her student talks like like Jane Campion's a you know a wonderful woman and She's written, I you know, I think this movie is really well written, but she does not understand the voice of American African American <laughs> of African American males when he's like, "Yo, is your book a diss?" <laughs> like, it's like, oh boy. Um, Maybe the Patrice O'Neill should have improvised. Fucking Patrice O'Neill, yeah, like, Patrice if you know who Patrice O'Neill is and you realize how sexist he is and how fucking like just like men dominate, like, and how. Like it's an interesting choice is. for him to be cast. It's incredible that I don't know. Like, just to me, the logistics of Jane Campion convincing Patrice O'Neill to play this transvestite pimp <laughs> is so fascinating to me. Um, and he's—I mean, Patrice O'Neill is, has such a great presence, so he's great in the, like the five seconds he's on screen. But no, like I think the character is so fascinating, and because you, we get all this depth before. Um, Mark Ruffalo even comes, you really get the full, like, the full angle, like, you really get the full effect of the the the, the levels of domination that come into play, mm-hmm. of she is allowing him, like, you know, uh, the, you know, all him and his cop buddies are joking about, yeah, all they need is a hole, you know, <laughs> a hole in a heartbeat, and stuff like like so she has the power by allowing him into her home and he has and she has she's letting him dominate her but at the same time you know she's allowing him uh to take it farther than she's comfortable with cuz she doesn't know cuz she wants to take it farther than that um like their whole relationship is incredible and Mark Ruffalo really plays that like there's not a single point where you think he's not being like he like he where he betrays that uh, very strong masculinity, but at the same time he he's a complicated guy as well, and mm-hmm. um like their the nature of their relationship is is incredible, and uh, oh and the uh, one of the other thing I want to say is I like the way that the sort of super narrow depth of field uh, mirrors the way that she views the world in very small details, um, like she's constantly writing down little phrases, yeah, um no sense of no sense of cock. <laughs> like that's it. What is, she goes? No sense to talk. What a great phrase, and like you know, which is number one, a, a, a good detail for a writer character. But number two, I think is also kind of how Jane Campion works. Like if I think of the best parts of Sweetie or An Angel at a Table, it's all very small, quiet, you know, intimate. sort of in, yeah, intimate moments that right. exist for a couple seconds and then evaporate. And I mean, that is what uh, 
uh, what's her what's the student film again called? Uh, on, passionless moments. What's that? Passionless. Yeah, moments. passionless moments is that's the whole film is made up of um, sort of unconnected moments like that. So I love. I'm sorry, I've been I, rambling I, a long no, time, no, no, but no, I, I, I really should. loved in the cut, and I really loved like to me this is pretty much a remake of the piano. I do think it's unfortunate that it is sort of saddled with a very standard serial killer yes. plot. Yeah, but. Uh, I think that the serial killer plot does serve a role as far as, you know, keeping the steady tension there and is sort of... And it's more in the background. Yeah, I mean, it towards the end, it does become an actual mystery as opposed mm-hmm. to... With a twist. Yeah, like the first half of the film, it's just this sort of unknowable, looming sense of danger, which again is a big part of being a woman. Is In just, New York City after yeah, 9-11. Being, right, being a woman in New York City is this... Know this sense of danger of I'm walking home late at night. I might get mugged. I might get raped if I run mm-hmm. into the wrong person at the, the at the basement of this bar. Right, something bad might happen to me. But she's still curious and she still watches. Yes. Um. So there's. I mean, it serves its purpose in that. But it's. But at some point, all of the people in her life just become an active like uh, suspects gallery, and then mm-hmm. it's kind of disappointing i um, wonder if this is gonna be like a martha marcy may marlene for me where like the first time didn't connect with me and then second time it connects with me third time maybe who knows maybe i'll wind up loving it um, all the more steven what what do you feel about it in the cut i uh it's funny the, the more you talk about it the more i'm starting to i mean i guess ultimately what my opinion is is that i really like the interplay between Mark Ruffalo and, and Meg Ryan. And I really like Jennifer Jason Lee. And I really like, I like all the quirky performances and Kevin Bacon's incredible uh, <laughs> Bacon. cameo. I really, I really love what she does with him. And, and it's sort of, she's almost surrounded by a lot of people with sort of like, I don't want to say like mental illness, but just she's this kind of like listless character who again is using. And one of the best things of the film for me is all the sex scenes and the way that she's using them to figure out what she wants or what she doesn't want. And they're like, character driven. Uh, yes. And, and, um, you know, and so it's interesting that she, she surrounds herself with, uh, people that are probably quirkier than her. And that, that rings true to me, I guess for me, I just had a lot of like little things that kind of turned me off. Um, I think her noticing things on the subway, uh, you know, phrases and things. I thought that, I didn't think it went further enough with what those, I don't know. It just seemed like after a while, it just seemed to get kind of, all right, like we get it. Like, you know, here's a meaningful quote on the side of a subway train. I, I just thought something like that to me just was more of an annoyance. It didn't really add anything. I did not take that literally again. Like the, I mean, a lot of this movie, I don't think it like, again, a lot of this movie feels very dreamlike to me. That almost felt like uh, like chapter titles that were dividing the movie. Um, I I don't know. Maybe that is an actual thing that happens on New York subways where they literally yeah. just have vague uh, quotes that aren't inspirational or or like very hard to decipher. Because I mean, the the choice of quotes there are not the typical sort of you know poems that you would find in an ad for a museum or something. You know. Yeah. Um, so to me, I took them sort of as more the like sort of chapter headings. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. And I guess for me that that's um, like you guys are saying, the beginning of the movie, I think really works is just sort of a sort of an eerie. The movie, again, the K-Sara-Sara cover with the like the sort of minor key piano, like yeah. I loved all that stuff. And I, I, I guess 
you know, in a way, like the piano, like Jim, you were saying how, you know, the, the narrative structure itself is very loose. Mm-hmm. I think for me, if, like you guys are saying again, like if the, if uh, In the Cut never went any further with the murder mystery, I think ultimately I could say I would enjoy the movie more. I think it almost, it almost, I think she should have picked one or the other, like just kept it more of the dreamlike, eerie, creepy, like unsettling vibe. But then once she starts to try and solidify it and give it details, I think that's where it kind of just, again, goes into sort of standard. Um, I, I, I would still but, not. Uh, I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, I, would, no. I would still I wouldn't call it standard. It's definitely less interesting. Um, it's definitely more interesting when it's just this unknowable sense of tension, and because the whole movie is very a- anxious, um, yes. and that's all part. And that again, the the way that the focus and the handheld camera work together, you're constantly like searching for what object in the frame is in focus, and you're. Your eye is constantly darting. It's a very mm. anxious movie to it watch. It feels like you're living in the mood of post-traumatic stress. Exactly, throughout. and and that is, and and that it achieves that in a visceral way. It's not just a like I was afraid that, and I I do think it sometimes at some points of the film it does get to be a little much as far as the focus goes. Like there are more quiet moments that I don't that go way out of focus where I feel maybe it should fit the tone of whatever scene it's going, but. Mm-hmm. Like, it isn't just, uh, like, this sort of heady art student idea. Like, it viscerally affects the way you watch the movie. But um, back to the serial killer thing. The whole movie is her is, – is different people trying to put on her what sexual – what she should do, um, and the, which is sort of the you inherent – You should just have sex for the exercise. Which is inherent <laughs> – which is sort of the inherent problem of, of, of female sexuality is mm-hmm. – is if I just this sleep if I should... just sleep with every man who wants to sleep with me, then I'm being too submissive. But if I don't give it up, then I am not being sex positive and I'm just being frigid. So and I'm either a slut or I'm too frigid. And she uh, and and here's someone who needs me. Should I be a mother? Should I should I be a teacher? Should I or should I go in this unknowable like place? Yeah. What role? Do the I whole fit but into? every even Mark Ruffalo. Um, early on is is you know imposing on her and she needs to figure out like the world will constantly impose on her she needs to figure out what she can and can't accept um and at the end i do think it's a little on the nose but uh the serial killer she's finally just like that is her making a choice her her making the choice is of of this is like you cannot turn me into something i'm not uh again the fact that he puts engagement rings on like that is that is like really sort of on the nose and too metaphorical, mm-hmm. but but that does give power to the final image of her returning to Mark Ruffalo, uh, and just like the door closes, you don't know where that relationship is going, and you don't. And I do think it Kinda is like The Godfather. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't anytime know. I see a door close, I'm just like oh. at the end of a film. Yep. I don't know if it was a Godfather reference. Well, uh, she said that, but it kind of was a like homage. it isn't. It isn't. Whereas it's not a typical serial killer plotline where it's only there for thrills and for attention and maximum excitement. It does have no. thematic relevance. No, I would agree with that totally. I, it's interesting how again, there's these fragile characters who experience, you know, something like you know, sexual liberation again in the midst of all this death surrounding them, and that's sort of interesting in light of. You know, uh, placing it in a post nine eleven environment, and it's interesting that 
Jane Campion's choice also mirrors the author's choice to make the detour because the the book that this was based on was a real uh, crazy departure for the author because she wrote novels that primarily took place in Hawaii. And here, you know, <laughs> like she was like, I want to go somewhere really dark. I want to explore, you know, uh, the gray area between, you know, how we perceive women and how, you know, sometimes we feel animalistic towards our sexuality and we can't express that because we're viewed in this horrible negative light. And so she brought that up when she wrote the book, and that was kind of her main intention. Um, now, you, you, Jim, have mentioned that the original ending of the book is darker. It is. Do you mind uh, sharing what the original ending is? Spoiler Because I, I do like the ending of this film. I do, too. I do, too. Um, it's a lot more nihilistic, but, I mean, it's rather... Um, Franny envisions her... Uh, well, no, I mean, she's dying, and she's sort of... Because you know the, she finds out who the serial killer is, but she actually gets killed by the serial okay. killer at the end of the book. And the last few paragraphs of or her just sort of like writing her own perspective of the serial killer killing her in a very gross and explicit way that a lot of people found it. You know, almost like how when they read American Psycho, this, the descriptive imagery of uh, Patrick Bateman committing these murders was just a little bit over the top. Um, for some people to read. Wow, that made it, that would have made the movie way worse. I'm glad that they changed the ending because, hmm. like, her, you know, I don't, I, I, I like. I just wonder if there's like you know some sort of mirroring of uh, or some sort of correlation be- between like the actual book to the lighthouse. If there's any sort of like thematic Oops. resonance in that, because she brings it up at the beginning, and obviously they're going to the lighthouse. There's and, a lighthouse on the on Mark Ruffalo's partner's desk. At yes, the, yes, 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 yes. Right. And the lighthouse could be a phallic symbol. Right. No, I was about, I was about <laughs> to say, it is the most phallic sort of place. I know. Every time I see and, a lighthouse, and, I'm like, holy And I would shit. say one of my, you know, one of my problems with Jane Campion, and this is something that uh, future guest Troy Anderson uh, sort of brought up when I was sort of asking people what their, before I even started preparing, what the thoughts on Campion is. He said that she never really left a, her film student phase. And there are times where the sim- probably true. The symbolism gets too big and her choices, like her bold choices don't stylistic choices don't pay off and like it, it often feels like the cart is she puts the cart before the horse where this is something I felt a lot with Sweetie where she had sort of an idea of how she wanted to shoot a movie and how and what she wanted a movie to be about but she couldn't think of like she there's but there's no story and there and it's a very loose story but it, yeah no um and i do think yeah there are parts of it in the cut that are a little on the nose it's not a perfect movie but it is a very moving movie i think and it's and i think meg ryan is great and i understand i guess people are distracted uh what someone brought up recently in, as regard to prometheus that uh like casting charlie's theron as she sort of runs the uh ship or whatever she runs the company that charges the ship um in in prometheus which is not spoiling anything is the first 10 minutes of the movie um like it's 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 almost distracting because she's not actually a huge part of the film but because she's the movie star you keep waiting for her to play her part Hmm. um Hmm. like you do have to as a director make the choice of if i cast a movie star against type this might be distracting to the audience I personally don't have any cultural connection to Meg Ryan. I don't watch – I've never watched Sleepless in Seattle. 
I don't watch a, you know a lot of movies that she's in. You should I, see Joe versus the Volcano. Well, right, but because <laughs> it's awesome. So I've, I understand that a lot of people have found it very distracting that that it was Meg Ryan in the part. But I think as far as her action, but it wasn't distracting for me. And I think as far as her actual performance goes, she's excellent. I'm kind of with you, Patrick, in the sense that I don't really have a cultural connection to Meg Ryan either. I guess we missed the boat when all that. Yeah, her. Yeah, her height was probably in the late late eighties, early early nineties, and you know we were. I I was born eighty seven. I imagine you were born around the same time. Yeah. Well, this time, let me tell you, people, she don't fake that orgasm in this movie. God. Unlike in when, when Harry met Sally. Yeah, and I, I, it's weird this film has this sort of reputation as, oh, that one erotic thriller that Meg Ryan did, when it's like way more complicated and interesting. Well, that's what I even told you before we started uh, talking about what movies were going to My memory of this was like, oh, this is like a Red Shoe Diaries episode. There's nothing profound <laughs> or interesting going on at all. It's just Meg Ryan gets to fuck. And that's all. I mean, like, my, it's so weird how. I wrote this movie off when it was first released, and maybe it's just because my mind wasn't ready to interpret it in, in one way or another, or I had expectations. But I definitely felt like Meg Ryan was a bit too passive, um, and a little like just even just like, well, what, what do you think? I'm a murder suspect now, or something? Like, I felt like she was underplaying it too much um, when I first saw it. And in, and there are moments rewatching it where I think, yeah, I don't know, maybe part of me is like any specific you, moments. No, nah, I mean just just in general. Like I, I, I mean maybe it's more in this. That's how her character is in the first part, in the first half of the movie, where she is just sort of like wandering aimlessly and having kind of uh, subdued reactions to dramatic things. And but but what 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 what, uh, what I think is so interesting about the performance is that. Like it isn't, it isn't. It, she does wander, but it, like you feel that she is searching for something, and I think there's a lot of she has a curiosity for it. I mean, I'm oh. sorry, was that was that Stephen? Oh, I was gonna say, I mean, I can see where you're coming from of her feeling subdued, and and I kind of initially thought that too, but in a way, I mean, she's just, you know, she's just trying to catch up with all this stuff. I mean, she's clearly, like you said, searching for something. But at the same time, I think there is some kind of extraordinary things going on. And I think for a normal person who doesn't quite know what they want in life, I think it's her just she's taking a lot of time to actually try and break it down and analyze it, which I think gives the sense that maybe, oh, she's not reacting properly or or as, you know, to some events. But it's like she's still just comprehending that they even happened, you know, and I think mm-hmm. – you know, maybe for people who live in, you know, people who just live in a place where it's kind of crazy living in a city or something, you're sort of just, you you know, you get used to it, you know, and at the same time, you can't even, um, you can't even process it because you're just like, oh, well, that's, you know, it's just something, you know, so I, feel like I, I, I don't think she can process which herself. Is two, two things that you said, Jim, that were interesting that I didn't even, uh, can, well, one of them I did consider, but I did not even consider this as a post 9-11 movie, which... As far as a, as far as post traumatic stress goes, that is like the closest an entire city has ever come to. Well, there are moments I was thinking of Twenty Fifth Hour just because of the framing or the, the the way the film is presented, not necessarily in themes or you know characters, but certainly just like the yeah, mood, the, it, mood, it, it the does, melancholy like, that kind makes of mood. sense as far as a, and that I think the setting works, um, uh, and also you sort of as far as following this post traumatic stress, you mentioned that. It might be something like Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. 
one of the other things I love about the style of film is it like it so thoroughly puts you in the head of the main character, and I, which is something I haven't really seen um, since Martha Marcy May Marlene, which is also about post traumatic stress and about searching. Uh, I think Martha Marcy May Marlene does it in a profoundly different way, mm-hmm. and I think it does it much better. But I like movies that a character is searching for themselves and trying to form some identity in the midst of all this other crazy shit going on in their lives. Um, I mean, again, I think it is partially, you know, my history of like watching Meg Ryan in earlier roles of being bubbly and perky. And I felt at the time this was like a conscious, I want to be completely different and shock people with what I'm doing. And uh, I don't feel that way now. I mean, I think again, to me, it would have been interesting and, you know, my my own personal preference and it's kind of like a what-if scenario of like, well, maybe Nicole Kidman, maybe Naomi Watts would have been better. Maybe, you know, like... Well, Nicole Kidman was originally signed on. Right. And then she she got somehow... I don't know how often this happens where an actress is like, oh, I can't do this, but I'll still stay on as producer. Like... (laughs) Yeah. That's... But, um... One of the things about Nicole Kidman is Nicole Kidman feels like almost like a porcelain doll. Like, like even in uh, something like Eyes Wide Shut, she's I very cold. I could buy her cold. being really detached. From well, no, things. detached for it was one thing, but I don't, I don't, I can't see her doing those scenes with Mark Ruffalo and feeling, and feeling that desperation and passion. Or vulnerability. Yeah. Like she, to me, is always yeah. someone, and again, it's, it's unfair to sort of lump, you know, Nicole Kidman's undoubtedly a talented actress and, I wouldn't say that she's less talented than Meg Ryan, so nah. you know I can't. I you know so maybe I'm sure Nicole Kidman could pull out fine, but uh, it's not. It's not Nicole Kidman is not the first name that jumps to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, again, I I don't have. I don't think it's a bad performance. I don't even think it's a bad casting choice. Um, I guess just that there is some sort of like cloud, Meg Ryan cloud hanging over my head. As I'm watching this movie, and it could just be preconceived, uh, you know, perceptions of who she is as an actress and what she's capable of. I think she pulls it off very well. Um, I don't. I don't necessarily have a, like a huge problem to where I'm willing to dock points from the movie itself because of her casting choice. Um, there is. There is. I, I. I guess maybe I brought this up before we start recording. I really do think Jennifer Jason Lee is a great actress. And I think there was like three or four movies in a row where she was just so in the background. And I, I don't know, maybe like my, again, I have my own biases of her like being really amazing because I saw a few movies where she gave great performances and I kind of wanted to see her, you know, excel once again. And part of me was like, maybe the roles could have been reversed. I don't know. Maybe it would have been really interesting. Maybe I would have liked it even more. But as it is, I. I think that upon a rewatch, I had a much stronger reaction to it, and I'm glad I re- got to rewatch it because I think there's a lot, to, uh, a lot, lot to chew on from this movie, and what I don't think people th- should write it off. What, what did you guys think of the um, the uh, old timey black and white or sepia toned? Uh, That's a question I had in general. Is like, what do you feel about the 
how it ties into everything, the skate, because that was like I something think, Roger Ebert mentioned in his reviews. Like, what the hell is up with the uh, I, I think skating? that was just uh, that, I mean, look at the way that Jane Campion portrays dreams in Sweetie. Look at mm-hmm. the way that she, I think that was just a dream. Stylistic touches. That was a dream sequence that, you know, I think that was a stylistic gambit that didn't, was not as successful. It didn't take me out of the movie, but it is no. one of, it is, it, I don't think it was a great choice. Um, she was sort of escaping into her imagination or her, in a way, I guess, when she was dealing with, uh, I, I do want to talk about Sweetie though. Yeah. Um, to me, like, uh, Sweetie is like, I understand now, like what it must be like, uh, for someone who, who like doesn't like Wes Anderson movies to watch a Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm. Cause Sweetie <laughs> is extremely quirky and it's like a Wes Anderson movie. All the characters in it ha- are at least mostly reprehensible like most like a lot of Wes Anderson movies um like it's it's mostly like in family bickering and like weird line readings that aren't quite like jokes genuine no not genuine but like they aren't really quite jokes you know like Wes Anderson uh when when uh when Max asks if if they got the piranhas that's not really a joke per se it's just like a delivered very it's not even the delivery. It's just okay. it's just the line. Like mm-hmm, the there's line a lot line. in Sweetie, but I don't think any of Sweetie is funny. Um, so I, and I was trying to like figure out what my problem with Sweetie was. Uh, did you get to sweet, see Sweetie, Stephen? Uh, I'm no, I did not actually. I'm very, I'm curious though now to hear now that you're saying. Yeah, it, please so. do. I'd like. Well, to hear my it. my problem my problem with Sweetie is all none of the characters have any aspirations or goals. Uh, the only goal anyone has is that uh, Dawn, the the title character, Sweetie, uh, is like there's sort of a running joke that she wants to break into show business. But that's never anything other than a running joke. There's no scenes where she's attempting it. There's no scenes. It's just like a throwaway gag. And everyone else is just unhappy and they're just sort of asking the world why someone won't make them not unhappy. And it's it, it's hard to root for, and they're they're not dynamic characters. There's no dynamic characters in the film. Uh, it's hard to root for people. It's hard to they they don't endear themselves. Like you, and again, because I was thinking in terms of contrasting Wes Anderson movies, everyone in Wes Anderson movies has a has a drive, a vision, a passion. There's they want to be somewhere. They they you know, and they'll go to extraordinary lengths to get it. Or they will like be very upset with themselves that they don't go to extraordinary lengths to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, at, I was just I'm looking over at the poster of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like everyone in that wants to be somewhere that they're not, and there's a longing. Where in Sweetie, it's just unhappy people, and it's just like a sea of miserable people, which doesn't bother me. <laughs> I, I think and, and this is something I've, I I I said to you earlier. Like I think Jim, you find people with like mental problems like inherently you are inherently sympathetic towards them and you find them inherently interesting definitely whereas me i think well they're not real people so they're only as good as the story that's being told with them maybe i'm being weird in that like i imagine in some in some way like what if these people walked into my office and i had to treat them and because, like, I was treating this movie in an interesting so way. It was like I was taking notes like they were real people. So you would watch this movie the way a chef would watch Big Night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although Big Night made me want to cook more yeah. when I saw it. Um, no, I think this is just like, a, you know, a crazy drama 
between two, uh, you know, contrasting personalities. One of them is sexually repressed and kind of neurotic and introverted. The other is completely uninhibited and psychotic. And the metaphor of trees here, uh, I really like. No, uh, this I mean, that, I was really, another, really that was like. another. Oh, there goes Jane Campion, the film student. Not like a whenever, not a no, 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 no. Whenever something happens in a movie where it makes more sense as a metaphor than it makes sense as an as like a narrative device, such as we're planting a tree in the concrete, like it's a po- it could be it's our an- like a poetic. It'll image be our anniversary tree. Yeah, but it's only for poetic image. Like if you give two seconds of thought to it, you go, "Oh, that's really forced." It's about <laughs> like, family trees. Like you that's know? it's really forced, and it's like, well, we okay, want this forced, to happen, but it worked on me at least. I don't yeah, know. no, I understand I mean, it worked. Like on just you. The, just the, the the planting of it, the uprooting of it, like her having these nightmares and visions about trees, and then in contrast, her mother sees them as a as this sign of hope, so she still believes in the family unit. And Again, then, it's and then what, of course, so what, kill, what kills Sweetie in the end? By being in a tree house. Yeah, it's it's incredibly. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't belabored. bother me. It really doesn't. And again, because because of having empathy for for these characters, that could be you know not necessarily a bias, but just I am prone to having some kind of emotional investment, even if the story is very loose and haphazard and not necessarily structured in a way that can be satisfying for people. And, you know, that's okay. I mean, there is, we'll eventually do um, Kislowski, and Kislowski is very much all about mood and atmosphere and not even reliance on that well, here's, aspect of and storytelling. Here's the problem of mood and atmosphere of uh, Sweetie. Sweetie does the other thing, the other film student thing, where every shot has to look interesting. Like, literally, every reverse angle, every, like, every shot of this movie has something weird and off kilter. But it doesn't. The characters are weird and off kilter. No, I know, no, I know, I know you don't like that. I know you don't like that. But it, no, it is the I've, worst. It is literally the worst thing. It is mm-hmm. that it is just saying, "Oh, it's a boring movie because it's about characters who are bored." No, that's not how you tell a story. Like I can't just film a. I, I, this is the example I gave you earlier. I can't get, film a tree for five hours and then show it to you and go, "Well, it's about how you don't want to just look at a tree for five hours." You can go, "Oh, brilliant! <laughs> that's exactly what it does." Like, no, fuck that. Like, you're telling a story, and the thing about filmmaking is the way you frame a shot, the way you put characters, you know, the way things are edited, they help convey emotion. But, sweetie, everything is working against it because she is putting the cart in front of the horse. She's saying, I want everything to look cool, and whether or not this actually portrays their, like, their inner lives or their emotions or helps tell the story – that's irrelevant, and so it's do you incredibly. Think the shots call attention to themselves all, so often. All of them do, and it's incredibly tiring. There's not a single just like simple, like establishing shot. It's all off kilter, and it's and it's tire and it's that sort of thing where, you know, it, it's sort of a lack of confidence in the material. I feel, mm. which I associate with student films, uh, because I think a, I think a lot of student filmmakers are much better. You know, they think they're much better directors than they are writers. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you you definitely make good points. Uh, you know, I'm hearing an interview with her and her talking about her family dealing with mental illness and her sister and her, you know, embarked on this movie as a way to deal with it. I don't know. I kind of, you know, bringing that sort of context doesn't necessarily, you know, make it a stronger movie on its own. But having that in my mind as I'm watching it also certainly influences my decision to completely write it off either. 
So let's talk about one more before we wrap things up here. Um, I, I'm interested if you've ever seen Holy Smoke, Stephen, because it's. Uh, a- you know, I didn't. I didn't actually see all of it, but I did see part of it, and uh, you know, just going around on the internet. You know, um, again, Harvey Keitel. <laughs> yeah, in a dress, wearing lipstick, flailing in around in the desert, longing after Kate Winslet. God, with his, with his how many times out. have I done that? With your dick out? Yeah. Or without your dick out? Both. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd say it's about a baker's dozen with the dick out, mm-hmm. and I'd say it's only about seven without. <laughs> Um, but you used to do a lot of mushrooms. You're a very different person now. True. Um, I like I like Holy Smoke. It again some some sort of like correlation to Martha Marcy, Marthy. Not necessarily like yeah. in the in the, the way whole, the story is told. I, I mean, yeah. They're other than the other than the basic premise. They're completely yeah. different movies. Uh, again, I do think it, I think the film is a sort of a feminist screed about sort of. How you know the patriarchy is basically the systematic gaslighting of all <laughs> women, and like just and this and it's super film schooly again. Like it's just all these ideas thrown at the wall, and it doesn't always make sense. And um, but what this has over something like Sweetie is that it has really good actors at the center. Kate Winslet, yes. Kate Winslet, and Harvey Keitel are both very good actors, Definitely. and. So their scenes are, you know, good, and it's it's a crazy movie. Uh, it's a lot it, more literal, like the, di- the the confrontational dialogue is very like, oh, men think this way, yeah. Blah, 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 and blah, every blah, blah. time, every time they do that, I like it a little bit less. There are like there is like there's like the chalkboard that says stream of consciousness. It's this thing where Jane Campion <laughs> wants to make sure we understand what she's saying, and whenever a director does that, it just it bums me out. Yeah, it sort of goes off the deep end, you know, halfway through when, you know, uh, Harvey Keitel becomes really obsessed and has like a reversal of character. And I I mean, I guess, you know, she is kind of going for a more of a lighter touch in terms of like what she brought with Sweetie and having these strangely absurd comedic moments. And they don't always work. I think, you know, halfway through my investment wasn't wasn't necessarily there with the characters but i i enjoyed watching the movie overall i just it didn't it didn't really strike me in a way that i found it entirely satisfying i found oh no i found it like becoming more and more disconnected as it went along uh you know and like pam greer just kind of shows up randomly and doesn't have anything to contribute to the movie overall um so i yeah i know there there's definitely probably a lot more going on here in this story that I maybe again if I watch it again in the future I'll find more to appreciate about it. It's a messy movie though. To yeah, to it put is. it put it lightly, it is a messy movie that's interesting because of the performances and some of the ideas in there. Is there is there a lot of uh, a lot of interesting sex scenes in this movie? Like um, okay, kind of wingers. Uh, and also, I always say cunnilingus wait, in that voice. Uh, can everyone, like a Muppet. Can everyone, can everyone be quiet so Jim can say there's some cunnilingus again in the Muppet <laughs> voice, and that way we can put it in the Directors Club soundboard. All right. There's some cunnilingus. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, all, hey, uh, you want to talk about you want to talk about uh, Campion uh, trademarks? How about uh, women squatting and pissing? Uh, yeah, what's the deal with that? Kate, Kate Winslet pisses herself in holy smoke in uh, Sweetie. Yeah, she, she's not even squatting though. She's just like right now. Yeah, I'm she's wet just, now. She's, Fuck me. she's literally walking 
<laughs> towards him as she pisses herself for no reason that I can tell. And that's when Harvey Keitel finally gives in. Yeah, yeah, because he loves he loves the smell of piss. Um, Dawn and Sweetie, like she, like they're calling, they're trying to wait her out because she's hiding out in the car, and they're like, well, he, she'll have to come out and use the bathroom eventually. And then she just comes and squats and pisses in the driveway. Uh, <laughs> there's the piano. The were those guys? Were those women nuns or were they maids? Uh, I think they were maids. Okay, mm, well, the the one maid. Yeah. Yeah, and they were like holding up the the things so that yeah. I mean, there's nobody in the forest. I don't know who's going to see the lady uh, piss, but I can't remember. The hole. Is there any pissing? Is there any uh, pissing in <laughs> in Angel at my table? Um, I don't think so. Okay, barely yeah, missed no. out. Mm-mm. Again, I think we have. You know, there there is sort of like not necessarily like the, the the exact same kind of bargaining going on. Oddly enough, having Harvey Keitel once again, you know, in in this movie, it's I guess you know maybe she's not you know again sort of going back to f- the the themes and familiarities of her work, like she's sort of trying to pierce the weakness of you know machismo and. And like the way Ruth decides to seduce him in kind of like an attempt to reverse the power struggle between the two of them. Yeah, I get, and yeah, all the sex does, as far as crazy sex goes, Stephen, all the sex does play out. All of, it's all about submission and domination. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I like Holy Smoke, but it is, I don't go into it expecting a coherent uh, film. Right. Or a coherent, fine. even a coherent statement. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty good. Actually, I really love her student film, uh, Passionless Moments. Yeah, it's on our blog at directorsclubpodcast.com. Oh, check it out. Um, yeah. Because it's, it's, I think, you know, we didn't really get to it too much, but I think one of the things Jane Campion really does well, especially in the whole first uh, third of Angel at My Table, is she pe- captures these very strange, unusual moments. Um, I, I mean, Angel at My Table tries to exist on those moments and without any kind of arc. And that's where it sort of lost me. But, uh, but like, she's very good at capturing these kind of moments. I mean, even in the cut, there's that great moment where the strippers are spraying down the the stripper pole and Mm -hmm. like just very small things. And that's the entirety of passionless moments is unconnected, um, sort of weird, quiet moments in which, uh, people think about something and the universe suddenly makes no sense at all. And then they put 10 more seconds of thought into it. And they go, Oh wait, no, like that's, yeah. And then it's gone. And that's, and that's such a great tiny little, uh, tiny little, uh, crisis, uh, uh, like existential crisis that will happen when you're just like, wait, it, wait, is a frog a toad is okay. No, <laughs> these are this, this, the world makes sense. I'm <laughs> yeah. And I, I think she, she really does tend to find the beauty in in these moments, and like for me, the summation of these moments in most of her movies really lead to uh, an, an emotionally satisfying experience. And I, I don't know. Again, it's like she she definitely embraces like the idea of imperfection, and that romanticism is kind of a you know it comes with consequences if you feel this, this sort of unbridled passion and desire towards something that may or may not lead to fulfillment and. You know that's that seems to me very apparent in the piano and in the in the cut very successfully, and I don't know. I think I think you know she's a very interesting filmmaker with some 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 idiosyncrasies and flaws that 
I don't necessarily always see as being a problem when I watch her movies. And she's working on a BBC miniseries next. Yeah. With Elizabeth really? with Elizabeth Moss, of all people. Oh, really? That yeah. should be interesting. Um, hmm. yeah. well, I mean, it's interesting how she'll do in the television format, maybe yeah. um, not so constrained by having to tell a, you know, a ABC, you know, beginning, middle, end narrative on, you know, in just one thing. Or who knows, it could just be all... More, yeah, more it could be. It's a. I think it's like a seven episode sort of mini series that is not. It's that is designed to mm. not have a second uh, season. But do you think Peggy will be back then? Uh, to Mad Men? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that seems is to a, be up in the air at the that's, moment. That's a good show though, and that's what it's we're an missing. amazing show. That's what we missed today to record this. Yeah. So uh, hey, everybody. We missed the Mad Men finale for you, fuckers. So stop complaining that we were so crazy mm-hmm. at the beginning. Maybe we were just upset that we weren't seeing Mad Men. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Sometimes I get to be a mad man. <laughs> or, or, or a sleepy man. Go, but that's the transaction. They have to miss something that they really wanted to see in order to listen to this. Yeah. That's yeah. right. You're not allowed to listen to this like on your work break. Yeah, don't go see Prometheus. Listen don't. to this instead. Next time Sorry. next next uh, time your girlfriend starts giving you bedroom eyes, say, Sorry, I have a podcast to listen to. <laughs> Sacrifice. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I mean, yeah, Jim Campion. I I'm excited to see maybe uh if there's a movie that she does that I like really, really love the way you guys love uh the piano. And maybe I'll really love it once if I get to see it. With fully subtitled, I think it's fully subtitled Netflix Instant, but my internet connection wasn't cooperating. Oh. So, well, um, I don't, I don't recommend Portrait of a Lady, Patrick. It's, it's really, really slow and kind of impenetrable, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, and it's like two and a half hours. Imagine like just a really gray, depressing version of the piano uh-huh. stretched for two and a half hours. Without really the the. Hey, si- what is it about pianos that make sub dom movies? Like, isn't the piano teacher about that as well? Yes, isn't the like which I, I like a lot. As I was watching the piano, I began to like start thinking, like having one of those existential crises. Like, wait a second, is this the piano teacher? Did I make up that there's a movie called The Piano Teacher? Hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's Jane Campion. Uh, any closing wor- Any closing thoughts, Stephen? Um. I'm just very curious to see. Uh, I'm very curious to see her pre um, her pre piano films because I think uh, Jim and I were talking about this briefly about international directors who, you know, eventually go Hollywood and and you know the consequences of that. Um, I think Jane Campion maybe even if her movies are flawed since then, a lot of the other New Zealand or Australian directors have gone on to make. Um, some some great New Zealand directors have gone on to make Triple uh, X Two, and uh, one of them directed Die Another Day. Oh, so, Lee, Lee Tamahori is a uh, New Zealand, right? Yeah, he, he directed Once for Warriors. Uh, yes, that's correct. And uh, so, if anything, now that you know, you guys have talked a little bit about Sweetie. Um, I'm I'm still curious to go and see it because uh, uh, I think New Zealand cinema is is very interesting. But it seems like again, overall, she's uh, She's a, kind of separated from it in a way, I feel like. So I and I, and I'm just I, curious to, to see more of what she, she's doing. And I feel bad because in the past, as I've been preparing for this, I keep, I've been constantly referring to her as an Australian director. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that she was from New Zealand. I guess I never bothered to look, but... Uh, I mean, she, she greatly she, appreciates she, it. She's she, going to listen to this episode and be pissed. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, so that's the uh, Jane, that's Gene Campion episode, everybody. <laughs> Stay well tuned done. for a bonus episode on Sweetie Todd. Yeah. 
Yes. That uh, we're going to do. It's a mashup. What it's the a beautiful fuck? mashup. That is, that is the worst fucking thing you've ever done. <laughs> I know. I love doing those things. <laughs> fuck it. Let's burn the whole episode to the ground. Uh, <laughs> next, next, uh, next episode is going to be about uh, Ridley Scott, who... Wow, isn't it interesting? After Prometheus coming out. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost... It wasn't planned that way. It really wasn't. Oh, we didn't plan it. No, I didn't know when Prometheus was coming out. I really didn't. Uh, Well, we'd probably make this the Prometheus Ridley Scott episode if we knew. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, uh, Ridley Scott will be interesting. Uh, We're going to be talking about, I believe, Blade Runner and Gladiator. Yeah. Uh, we there's there's nothing anyone has to say that's new about Alien, so we're not going to bother. Fucking rules. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> everyone knows that. Um, so anyway, uh, you want to see us? Go to the Directors Club Podcast dot com. Yeah, check out our cool mugs and, and uh, visit. Give us an email if you like. I didn't really see pictures of us. Yeah. Well, I well you said if you want to see us at uh, Directors Club Podcast. But if, if you, you want to if you want to see website, if you want to see pictures of us, you can go to meninsidemen.com. Oh god. Uh, if you want to email us, that is Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. I'm at Twitter, which is <laughs> <laughs> it's in Jim. I I couldn't believe the name wasn't taken. Jim is at Twitter. At Twitter, at Twitter, at Twitter. He's uh, instant Jim is my name. I am at Patrick Rapol. Uh Stephen Ray Morris, are you on Twitter? I, I am indeed on the Twitters, and uh, I'm at Stephen Ray Morris. Um, you can uh, so you send us email. Oh, also, as always, uh, you my my viewing journal is Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot WordPress dot com, and I'm keeping a film journal at letterboxd.com slash instant gym. And again, if uh, we want to know how you feel about us dividing the show into a, what, a weekly what we watched uh, show and a director uh, bi-weekly director's club show. So uh, let us know. Yeah, that'd be cool. Thanks, guys, for listening to the show. And we'll uh, talk to you in a couple weeks for Ridley Scott. I love you all. Good night. Bye. I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Can I can't hear you, Stephen. I can't hear you, Stephen. That was the latest Carpenter's hit. I can't hear you, Stephen, here on Patrick's. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this was the podcast? So we just put it out there for everybody. <laughs> This is what Jim Campion inspired in us. <laughs> this should be our uh, uh, Louise Bunel. <laughs> so she's like, fuck.